Hey everyone, thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Bite Size Law with Siddharth Menon. Today we have a really interesting guest. Her name is Mona Dutt. Mona is the CEO and founder of Loom Analytics, a legal tech company based in Toronto, Canada. I had a really exciting chat with her throughout this episode. I hope you guys have fun listening to it as much as I had fun recording this. Thank you so much. Hey, Mona. Glad to have you on Bite Size Law. Hi, Sid. Nice to be here. Perfect. So, Mona, I've known you personally for several years. Uh, but for our listeners, would you mind providing a brief background about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I'm Mona Dutt. I am an engineer by training. Um, graduated a very long time ago, back in 2000. Um, practiced as an engineer in a hardware company for seven years. Then started my first company back in 2006. Um, and ended up starting uh, my second company, Loom Analytics, that I've met you through uh, about eight years ago. Um, and Loom Analytics um, started out in the litigation analytics space and pivoted to private data analytics and um, pivoted again in the last couple of years where now all of our products um, are um, specifically in workflow automation mm -hmm. um, in the legal uh, slash medical and insurance space. So we we have a couple of products uh, in um, media, voice, uh, transcription, and we have a product around uh, basic contract automation. Perfect. So, Amona, um, I'm, that's a really interesting jump, you know, from uh, being a corporate employee and then becoming an entrepreneur. So what led you to, you know, start a business and especially something that focuses on the legal industry? Um, so I come from a family of uh, business owners. Uh, my dad, uh, all the siblings, my grandfather on his side, um, so for me, I've always grown up around business. Uh, that was one thing. Um, and uh, my husband is a lawyer. Um, so even before we uh, got married, I had started a couple of ventures, um, chose not to continue on with them. I was not ready to make the jump um, from being an employee with um, a consistent paycheck to being an entrepreneur where um, things are a lot riskier. Um, having a second income once we got married um, gave me uh, the flexibility uh, and the ability to actually go out there and um, really build a business and take the risks that um, uh, my if I'd lost my own income as a single person would not have been possible for me. Um, I started in the legal space because um, he was monitoring um, uh, industry uh, publications and what he found was there was a looming shortage of um, stenos and typists and all of that and so that was for the first business right like stenos and typists and all of that and um, he suggested that I, I look into running a transcription company in the, in the legal space yeah. uh, so that was for the first company and for the second company Loom eight years ago uh, that's the space I understood because I'd been running a uh, business for 13 years prior to that in the legal industry. I And the business had now 
uh, really focused on court reporting uh, transcripts as well as uh, insurance uh, transcripts for witness statements um, and recorded statements out in the field. I really understood that part, the claims investigation and the litigation process. So I could see the value of all the data that sat in there. In addition, um, I had watched my husband through his articling in early years as an associate do manual legal research. So I was curious about the possibility of um, helping automate some of that research, um, at least the the front end of it, uh, where um, you know case law is found based on certain parameters. Um, it was done manually. Really, the only um, innovation that had happened at that point was they'd gone from books to being on the internet. So I was curious about the patterns um, and I did have a keen interest in data and that's how Lumenalytics was born. Perfect. So uh, that's really fascinating. And I think um, at this time, maybe we should tell the listeners that we are set up, that Loom is set up in Canada and the court reporting as well as the litigation analytics specifically focus on cases within Canada. Is that correct? Yes, yes. So um, it's interesting because that initial product, Court Analytics, very recently um, was uh, shut down. We chose to discontinue offering the product. Um, and it was because um, we didn't really see traction um, for a very long time. I kept at it. Um, we didn't see the traction that we wanted to see. The numbers did not uh, merit us continuing on. So uh, at some point in the last year and a half or so, we decided to discontinue offering the product. We did hear signals from the market that uh, while there was no interest in the public data, they would be interested in analyzing their private data. So our next pivot um, was to a private data platform where the clients could analyze their own data. Um, that didn't go so well either. Because uh, we found out very quickly that while there's an interest in analyzing private data, there is actually a lack of structured data in the legal space. Mm-hmm. And um, there is um, a lack of uh, data that is available to be structured as well because it's very fragmented. Right. If you go into a law firm, um, there isn't one single repository, or at least a couple of years ago, there wasn't one single repository where all the precedents, precedents could be found, where all the metrics could be found, uh, settlement um, offers could be found. It was scattered. It was in mailboxes for partners. And um, it's it wasn't something that was, for me at least, of interest to go down that path and repeat my experience with court analytics over again with the private data analytics for another six years. So that so we ended up pivoting um, to something a, a lot different that I was much more familiar with, which was a narrow use case around transcription mm-hmm. and providing speech to text services in the legal sector, um, as well as providing uh, another narrow use case around contract automation. So that's what we offer right now. So it's uh, Claudio is our uh, uh, speech to text offering. um, And in that case, we offer uh, transcript automation services to transcription companies, um, as well as in-house transcription teams in in, uh, insurance companies. 
uh, as well as we offer the ability for uh, the litigation space actually to be able to quickly search through large volumes and audio of audio and videos through um, the same tool. In addition, simple contracts, which is our contract automation offering, um, allows basic contract automation. Because what the what I've discovered is that um, while my initial interest was building um, what I'd like to now call um, you know, solving bill, big problems in the industry, I've switched to solving very narrow um, problems that are more applicable, things that my client base would see on a daily basis. Yep. I think that's a very good strategy because instead of trying to solve um, a big issue, you if you focus on specific use cases and if you target law firms with their specific challenges, it's much more scalable, in my opinion. Yeah. And, and you know, what I have seen is there are a lot of tech products out there that um, solve for big problems. But then, um, you know, is the market even ready to solve those problems? Or is the market even looking to solve those problems is the question. Right. I, I, I put out court analytics, but... Um, litigation largely does manual legal research yep. and uh, they don't really use data analytics from, from a strategic level either. Um, it's the same thing with private data analytics. It isn't done uh, currently. And um, I was going to go up against a, a significant momentum to try and change business practices, which in hindsight was um, not the best move on my part. So I chose to go and look at narrow business processes that made sense to automate that would not go against um, conventional uh, business practices and conventional revenue models. That's nice. So um, this is uh, that's actually an interesting point, especially when you talked about um, Court Analytics, which is a litigation analytics platform, right? Um, uh, when I speak to lawyers, um, law depart law departments of various companies, um, I feel that they are sometimes resistant to changes um, to their existing processes. They have a traditional way of um, working, and at the same time, they don't want to implement new technology. Uh, you know, uh, because, you know, they have their articling students, they have their associates or uh, junior associates to do bulk of the work, especially in litigation analytics. One of the challenges that we faced in the past is that it was hard to sell it because it was hard to convince a lawyer to switch from a traditional method to more of a tech savvy method for a lack of a better term. So. Um, do you still see those kind of resistance from law firms or lawyers uh, or um, or is it a mixed mixed um, you know approach because um, another common challenge that we've seen is when you uh, when when you try to pitch a product to let's say again a law firm or a law department they feel that tech can alleviate all their legal process problems but at the same time if the client isn't ready or if the market isn't ready you tech is just going to exacerbate the existing problems within their 
you know, uh, internal workflow. So do you see a mixture of one resistance and the other one, you know, oh, we want to do like a big bang tech implementation and tech is going to solve all my problems. But at the same time, the implementation fails. Uh, do you see those kind of trends in the market or do you see those kind of challenges in the market? So I'd like to take a step back, right? Um, human beings in general and busier the human being, the more you'll see it. Uh, lawyers are very busy. Uh, if something works and if something allows them to just keep moving and get through their day, they're not looking to change, right? I'll give you an example. I use my iPhone till the battery is dead and the battery pack is no longer functional. <laughs> yeah, I just do it. Yeah. And it's because the whole process of me going through and getting my next iPhone. And then even though the, the switch between the iPhones is pretty seamless now to do, to move the apps, it's, it's proximity now. It still takes me time to go through that exercise. And I, this exercise repeats itself over and over again. I switched from a first gen iPad to my current iPad only a year ago. That first gen iPad is pretty old. And I only switched because my libraries um, app stopped working. That's the only reason I switched. So we just don't like change. And I'm a tech founder, right? If something's working for me, unless the pain is very, very high, or the other thing is, unless you are going to make the change possible without asking me to change the way I do things. Mm -hmm. That's one thing I've learned. If you can introduce the change, and I'm not going to say tech because I think saying that it's tech is the wrong way to look at it. If you can introduce a change to make my life better without making me too uncomfortable in the process, I'll probably make that change easier. Yep. That's one thing I've learned in the last eight years with Loom, right? Yep. With Cord Analytics, it was too much of a change from normal. Mm. When I look at Claudio, the product we're building now, I built it very differently. We largely did the process manually for the first six months so that I could understand really how the customer was using the system. Okay. Customers were emailing the files so that I would understand it. So that is important for us to understand. It's And it's not about the tech. Right. You need to understand the client's business processes first. And you're right. Tech is not the be all and end all. When you're doing a transformation of process, you cannot say, well, I'm just going to throw a bunch of tech at it. Let me buy A, B and C products on the market. And so that will help me solve problems in department one, two and three. That's the wrong way to look at it. You have to look at your current business processes. You have to step back and say, well, this is the input. That's the output. What is the best way to go about fixing it? And then see where tech fits into the process. Hmm. And this applies to both sides. It's it's the vendor, the tech vendor that's trying to build the product, but also to the customers. And if you're fortunate, the vendor and the customer can both talk about it frankly before they go down the path of figuring out if it's a good fit. Yeah. And I like to do that. Like with, with Claudio, where we go into transcription departments as well as full-fledged transcription companies, 
it's very important for me to understand the business model and the process. Mm-hmm. Understand whether you know that it's an in-house um, employee typing pool, or are they subcontracted or self-employed uh, or freelance typists? Because that will change the way the client, the buyer, is going to approach the decision, both around you know their their appetite for risk as well as how they will. Um, um, deploy and train their staff to actually adopt the tools. So it's important to understand it from both sides. And I also think that the customer needs to be willing to come to the table to have that open discussion. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that was going to be my question, which you, uh, you know, uh, right, uh, aptly summarized. What is your process of convincing um, let's say a buyer, especially when it comes to Claudio, which is a legal transcription tool, how do you convince them? How do you identify the gaps within their business process to ensure that they are buying Claudio for the right reason? So first of all, don't try to convince every single person you talk to about it. Like not every single transcription company is a good fit for us. The first step for me is figuring out if they're a good fit for us, because we have a sweet spot. If you are a large transcription company with a large in-house tech team, you're not a good fit for us. It it just isn't because um, our typical um, client has anywhere from ten to ten to you know two hundred typists in-house um, and or even contractors for that matter, but has a very small limited tech team, uses third-party tools um, with primarily manual typing or has kicked kicked around the tires to look at speech-to-text, but has not had much luck with it. So they're, they're sort of open to the idea, so they're willing to talk to us. Then I actually try to understand what their business processes are, how they receive the audience from the client, how they type, um, how they return the transcripts back to the clients, what is it that they're looking for, what their expectation of quality is. Because if you're looking for just good enough, um, we're probably not a good fit because we sit in a very specific pricing as well as service segment. We are an enterprise-only company. And that's why I started with not every transcription company is a, is a good fit for us as a client. You've got to figure that out first. Yep. Is is this company somebody that would understand the value and also would be um, successful at doing a deployment of Claudio because we have seen and we've we've come across clients where they'll do their pilot and because Claudio is fundamentally an admit, like it's an operations tool where your typists have to use the transcripts coming out of Claudio to edit instead of where they used to previously type, you're now editing transcripts. It's a switch in how your operations happen, your business processes, all your, you know, transcriptionists now have to become editors. So unless you are as a company, as a client, willing to invest in that transition over a six to eight week period, it's not going to happen because there will be pushback from the staff. And this goes for any tech tool, by the way. The sale of the tool is just the beginning. The change management to work through and get the client's teams 
to learn to adopt and use the tool, to me, is 80% of the battle. If I go into management and say, oh, I can help you reduce 50 to 70% of cost for that business, for a business process, management is sold, right? Unless like they don't know me at all. Management is on board. But if once the contract is signed, the people that have to work with your tools are not trained on it or not willing to use it for whatever reason, you're not going to get adoption. And then, you know, during renewals, during um, any type of ROI, ROI review time, you're probably going to get dropped. So all that investment you made up front to win the client, to onboard the client, it's gone because you've actually not had, um, you've not provided the client the ability to All right. So change management is what I understand a potential barrier when it comes to widespread adoption. Is that right? Sorry, you, you. All right. So uh, what you were saying is uh, change management could be a potential barrier. Or if yes. you don't have an effective change management system, it would be a potential barrier for widespread adoption of you know any technological yeah. product. Yeah, any change for that matter. Like for any change, if you're changing a business process, just telling the the people in that process that this is the change is not going to work. You've got to help them make that transition. So how do you alleviate that? I mean, how do we convince? How do you convince or how do you put in place or how do you help uh, a specific business department put in place an effective change management? Do you have any thoughts on that? So for us, what we do is, um, while in the early days, I wouldn't bring it up during initial discussions. Now, within the first or second discussion I have with a potential client, I clearly bring up the risks. Mm. I clearly say, you know, it twenty percent of this of of a challenge for you to switch your team over to uh, using Claudio is not is the sale for me 20% of it is convincing you 80% of it is going to be convincing your team and so i need to make sure that you're okay with us working with your team so we actually have significant amount of training material that we provide up front to the client so they get a taste of you know the types of content we have available we offer our enterprise clients ongoing webinars uh, for the um, that are actually geared directly to their clients, it's not an open. There's these are not open webinars. These are webinars specifically for their client uh, uh, teams, like their typists themselves, um, where they can have discussions, ask questions about common challenges. They can learn how to use the tools, learn how to be better editors, because you know some of these people have been typing for twenty years. So switching to a different way of doing work that does not initially feel comfortable to them requires change and it's hard. And we have to be empathetic about the fact that we can't just roll out a tool and say, okay, money's in the bank, off I go to the next one because you are going to see churn. So it is important that both sides recognize this. If a client now says to me, well, I can figure it out and I can do this on my own, I'll clearly say, I don't think this is gonna work. Because I 
have the experience and our team has worked with, like, and we work with five to six clients a month on doing these rollouts. We've seen what works, what doesn't work. And it's important for the clients to understand those risks up front. So we, at, at times we'll just say, and there have been situations where I've said, well, you know, when you are ready to, and when you're at a place where you feel like your team can handle um, an onboarding cycle with training, that's when we should re-engage. And we've had at least two clients that we've put on hold until they're ready for that. Because there is no point of both sides going through the investment in time and money um, of trying to um, basically force the adoption of a tech tool without the appropriate support around the training. Absolutely, yeah. That's an interesting point. So change management, change management is crucial when it comes to, you know, yeah. adoption of technology products or in terms of any sort of process changes, you know, yeah. you need to ensure that the users are trained upfront, or at least it is important that the risks are assessed or discussed even before the implementation or the integration begins, because that'll end up being a failed implementation over the long It will. It will. I mean, what is the point of rolling out um the tool if if nobody's going to use it absolutely so apart from change management do you see any ethical considerations uh, being a barrier to adoption uh, like you know privacy data management confidentiality and all those sort of stuff because those are crucial aspects within uh, law firms because you know you have client data you have um, personal data so our privacy confidentiality, those sort of ethical considerations, uh, um, barriers to that option? So there are concerns. Uh, we only operate in the enterprise space. We Our primary client base, as I said, is legal, medical, and insurance, for tra for at least for Claudio. Um, and so that's, that product does have all of those concerns. And we work with the clients through them. I mean, some clients um, will say, uh, this is not going to work just for that very reason. We explain to them and we give them all the information we have. Uh, we explain to them that we're an enterprise-only product. We have uh, encryption at rest, encryption in uh, transit. Um, we do store the data in the um, uh, country that it's required to be stored in. We have servers um, in four regions. We have servers in UK, Australia, Canada, and US. And the clients that... Uh, um, and we only service those regions actually for that reason, because we are an enterprise only company. Um, and so we have those discussions when they come up. Um, another discussion that does come up is because we are um, an automation tool is around the impact to employment and the impact to people, because that is a big risk. Um, I had a discussion with um a potential client a couple of days ago where he said one of the biggest reasons he hasn't really looked at uh, automating his any part of his transcription process is the impact to jobs. And I had to remind him that we're a very, very long way away from, <laughs> uh, from you know, replacing, human, replacing forces, human forces. And and to be fair, the, the level of accuracy required, it's it's for legal and medical, um, it would be uh, pretty negligent yep. to remove human editors from the loop. Uh, we've seen uh, a couple of instances uh, from courts 
um, out of the U.S. actually, where they'd gone to a fully automated system and um, things didn't end well because the accuracy of the transcripts was questioned. Then it came out that the transcripts were from a fully automated system um, and things did not end well with that one. And so it is important that when you are rolling out automation tech, you do keep in mind that the humans in the loop are critical to the process. Um, otherwise, you know, the pendulum would swing so far the other way that they'd say, well, the tech is completely useless. It's not a good idea. So it is important to keep that balance in mind and also keep the human factor in mind. We have to be cognizant and empathetic to the fact that it, with all the media coverage around chat GPT and AI, yep. it is a scary thought to someone who doesn't understand really where the tech is at. Um, yep. And the, where the tech is not at when they read an article that says robots are coming for your jobs. Exactly. Or AI is coming for your jobs. Like, and for us, it's transcriptionists. They are administrative roles. They are typists. They are, they might not actually um, realize or understand that a lot of those uh, headlines are clickbait. Right. And um, like I, I personally am of the opinion that um, there is very, um, there's actually probably a very, very low chance that in the next 20 years, 25 years, any of the roles are going to be fully automated. Like there is going to be human supervision. We were talking about, you know, fully self-driving cars. Yep. Guess what? It's not happening anytime soon. There are people on the road that can't be trusted with fully self-driving cars. Like so, so we have to appreciate that when we are talking to clients, when we're talking about change management, we have to actually remember that um, in some cases, um, your uh, users of your tech tools are also scared for their jobs. And so when you are talking about it, um, you've got to keep that in perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what you said is absolutely right in the sense um, when we when we hear AI or when we talk, when people talk about AI, the first question, um, uh, you know, generally people have is that is AI coming for my job? Yeah. But at the same time, especially when I have conversations with people, especially my parents and stuff, you know, um, oh, um, but do you work for a company that has AI com- uh, uh AI capability, does that mean that you're going to replace people with computers? But like you said, we're a long way away. I, I think still AI, especially chat GPT kind of technology, still uses reinforced learning with human feedback, right? You need yeah. a level of human feedback to ensure the computer thinks like a human being or the technology thinks like a human being. All it's doing is you're training patterns. You're, you're training... like. It's 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 pre-created human information that the the model is learning from. And what's interesting about that is I was reading an article last night about a math teacher that's um that's running lectures in schools specifically about the differences between AI and humans. And um he talked about a math problem that technically a fourth grader could answer, but when it was put to Chat GPT, it fumbled. And it's probably because ChatGPT hadn't seen that problem before. So Correct. we have to recognize that in, in some ways, this is one massive lookup table. Yep. I think ChatGPT is more of a sophisticated compiled, sophisticated compiling system where it yeah. uh, 
uh, gathers the information from the internet but the biggest um, scary part about chat gpt is that there is, there are no sources to validate the information right yeah yeah like for yeah. example if you look up wikipedia wikipedia still has links and sources listed there but chat gpt you just take for take its word for it So I mean the same way you 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 have to remind your kids that Wikipedia is not an encyclopedia and it has sources yes but they might be wrong um I don't know if people are going to understand that about ChatGPT Yep That's uh that's fascinating So uh, switching gears here um Mona so um could you talk a little bit about simple contracts which I know is uh, another product of Loom Analytics Yeah so simple contracts is very very basic in terms of contract automation it is not fancy contract life cycle management um it allows clients to turn their daily contracts is not by the way it's not meant for sophisticated procurement workflows it's the basic functionality narrow use case very similar to claudio uh, it allows clients to t- take their daily templates uh of contracts so you could be i don't know an auto dealership or a retainer agreement that a law firm has with their clients right something that's very common and pretty standard cookie cutter and it allows you to turn it into a template with a workflow where you just get signatures done now somebody could pause and say well what about docusign and adobe e-sign well a lot of clients out there do not have the ability to set that up they just don't have the technical capability or they don't have the interest in doing it right so this is more of an off the shelf thing it's the same with claudio we have clients that come to us and say well there's a ton of asr products out there great but what we provide is a more finished experience in both cases right so it's a ready to go you don't have to do anything kind of offering so does simple contracts um Uh, would it have any capability to integrate with an existing tech stack of a client so how does it pull the information um like does it have the capability to integrate with sftc or like salesforce.com or sap no because it's not meant for that it's actually meant for a user that has no other tech it's meant to let them automate their contracts their daily contracts well, it's meant to be much like again narrow use case at least the way it is today it's meant to be a basic tool that will just work um no fancy integrations now claudio is different in that respect because we've got clients that want an api into it that want um a dropbox integration and you know an automated sftp integration and stuff that's different with simple contracts it's it's meant to be a very um narrow use case of just allowing someone to automate their contracts so that instead of sending it through email where the other side has to print sign uh scan and send back it's the same contract over and over again that you just need to be able to send so a user will fill out um you know in a data entry screen will fill out what they want the contract to say hit send send for signature and it comes back signed filed away it it has renewal dates in it so that when it's time to send a contract for renewal it will send it maybe a month before or whatever you've configured it to do and repeat that's it that's awesome. very very basic awesome so mona i know that you're a really busy person i just have a couple of more questions yeah. and we can wrap it up um i think we briefly touched upon this initially 
uh, what advice would you give legal um, you know legal professionals who are hesitant to embrace technology i know we talked about change management uh, the level of risk roi and everything but how do you how would you what kind of advice would you give them so that uh, they can start incorporating technology into their practice in a much more meaningful and sustainable way um first you need to understand your business processes you need to understand what like let's say you're a part of a team and you're trying to figure out change figure out first what your current processes are whether all those steps in the process are needed um drop the ones that are not needed um and then come up with a more uh concise process and then look at where tech can enable um better returns do not look at tech and have the FOMO effect of well everybody else is using x so i'm going to try and shoehorn x into my business processes that's the l- wrong way to look at it you have to first understand what you do what yep. your processes are are they all necessary and then go from there absolutely i completely 100% agree to that mm-hmm. also um mona if you have to give advice to let's say a person who wants to start a legal tech company or a, an aspiring legal tech entrepreneur what would your what would your advice be because i know that as a tech entrepreneur you definitely would have gone through many challenges while setting up blue analytics and the um, uh, i believe e decree was the other company that you had yeah. so what would what would be your advice to aspiring legal tech entrepreneurs so we're on our third pivot um and the first two were because i did not understand the customer well enough before i went and built i would really really encourage you to first um understand the market you're trying to build for the pro- problem you're trying to solve for if it's even a problem that wants to be solved um and understand if it's a problem that in your perspective is large enough to be solved um not everybody has to build a company that wants to be funded so if you feel like there is a problem that in your perspective um you don't care to be a funded company you want to start a business um that grows at a certain clip if the problem is large enough where you believe you can achieve that understand the customer's workflow um put together um initially a manual replica of that workflow and then build on that and automate from there or um you know build a more sophisticated product on top of that so what i would encourage you to do is don't put the cart before the horse do not go and build and hope they will come um actually understand the market understand if there's a big enough market for what you're trying to do um and what you expect out of the uh company and try and build a company and not just a product like yep. foundationally it's not you have to define whether you're a, when you're whether you're building a product or a company and take that perspective when you move forward yeah that's a fantastic point yeah. it's uh, really interesting and especially learning from a person who's done that over and over again it's um, it's uh, much more important yeah. especially so um having said that so let me uh, i think it's time for us to wind up before we go mona where can people reach out to you Um so my email address or on LinkedIn my email address is monadloomanalytics.com or I am available on LinkedIn as well send me a note 
Perfect. Once again, thank you so much, Mona, for joining Bite Size Law. It was wonderful chatting with you. I learned a lot in the last uh, 30 to 40 minutes. Um, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much, Sid. And uh, yeah, stay in touch. Take care. Thank you. Bye.